You're listening to Board Gamers Anonymous, episode 36. This week we're looking at Imperial Settlers, Power Grid, Endeavor, and Friday the 13th. You're listening to a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron, but with better lip-syncing. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, a podcast about gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Anthony. This is Chris. And this is Daniel. Welcome to episode 35. Uh, Drew could not make it to this episode, unfortunately, but he is joining us uh, to read the news just in just a couple minutes. So he'll be with us for at least 10 minutes. And then you can just imagine him uh, sharing his opinion on the rest of the games. We'll do what we did with Daniel and just jump in for him and assume what he thinks. <laughs> yeah, that, that, I'm sure he'll be fine with that. Wait a minute, wait a minute now. <laughs> the things that you promised our listeners was really generous of you. Oh, uh, you know. <laughs> promises, they don't always get kept. Ooh. <laughs> but these did, and you especially said that when you would say that, it didn't mean that. It meant the that. opposite, which was really strange at the time, but works out now. No, you know, it's just preparing. <laughs> it's good. It's good to do that. Yeah. It helps that we know what you like better than you do. <laughs> uh, if that was true, I wouldn't be surprised every time you want to burn a game. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so we're going to jump in. Uh, we're going to talk about the news in just a couple minutes, and then we'll hit our reviews. This week we're talking about Imperial Settlers, which was a big, big hot game all summer. Uh, introduced at Dice Tower Con, big hot seller at Gen Con, already sold out, I'm pretty sure, everywhere else. So, ha ha, we got one and you did it! <laughs> <laughs> and we played it and we're going to talk about it in just a little bit. Uh, but first off, let's jump into the news. Uh, let Drew take that away. Shout out from the tabletop. News and commentary from the VGA news team. That's us. That's, us. That's me. <laughs> Hasbro is doing everything it can to remain relevant to serious gamers. They've uh, invited fans of uh, fans of some of their games, some of uh, all games, to submit art that they would turn into 3D models. Uh, games like Monopoly, Scrabble, Dungeons and Dragons. Um, you can submit your designs by September 9th to Hasbro and uh, possibly win a, a contract with them. I don't know what else you can win except that your models will be created and sold for great profit by Hasbro. <laughs> that sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. A little bit more information on that Asmodee acquiring Days of Wonder. Um, it's covered by ICV2, that uh, entertainment industry website, and Forbes magazine. So it's a major, major event. Um, the reason, it seems like one of the big reasons why uh, Days of Wonder was bought up was for their digital uh, apps. That they're big into that. Asmodee wants to launch into that. They, of course, want to branch from Europe into America. They want to become a truly international company. Is that the future of gaming? Are we going to start seeing uh, European companies try to take over America and make everything multinational? Could, yeah. I mean, we do it to enough other industries, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's happening. So you wonder, you know, is this the, the niche industry that we're used to? Is that going to be a thing yeah. of the past? If you're looking for logistics and distribution, it's America, right? Right. Well, and I mean, also, if you're to listen, if you're ignoring major markets like China, like India, you're ignoring a couple billion people who might be playing your games. There was something I read recently, though. They have industry. Uh, China has a great counterfeiting industry where they take. <laughs> uh, well, I read this article about Bang. They took uh, everything about Bang, the mechanics, and just relabeled it something something Three Kingdoms, um, under a whole different name, a different line, but everything was identical. And they seem to be able to get away with that. So, they don't really enforce the laws. So, oh, it's being marketed in the Western. Oh, really? Yeah, under the Three Kingdoms. So that's where the controversy is. Well, that comes back to that whole copyright thing. When are gaming companies going to start digging in their heels on these? Um, It also highlights the difference between trademark and copyright because you really have to have a grip on both because one kind of law is stronger than the other. I think trademark is probably tougher. People are very jealous about protecting their trademarks, whereas there's so many ways to get around copyright law, it seems, nowadays. Yeah. 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 So, And um, one other thing that we want to report a little bit more on, ICV2, the website, uh, rep- gave us some numbers on Gen Con, all the record-setting numbers. 56,000 attendees was 14% more 
There, for the past four years, they've increased more than 10% each year. And they noted that the exhibition hall sold out early, 370 ex- exhibitors. Makes me wonder. San Diego, they're having a problem with Comic-Con because they're getting too big for the convention hall there, and Comic-Con is threatening to pull out unless San Diego increases the exhibition space. Could that happen in Indianapolis? Can you imagine Gen Con being anywhere else other than... Yeah. The Dice Tower was just talking about this, too. Like, should they introduce a cap on attendance? Should they change how they do the, the venue? Should they ask Indianapolis to do something for them? I guess nobody really knows yet, but they got to figure something out. It at least opens the door for there to be more conventions, right? Yeah, And definitely. more regional conventions. So when you talk about Comic-Con, right, when the first great Comic-Con started to get too large for people to go there, then you see swelling in attendance at the local comic conventions, and things like Dragon Con get more attendees, and the New York Comic-Con gets more attendees. Uh, and so there's that sort of spillover. Yeah, because I'm never going to go to San Diego because it's too hard. And it's so, you know, it's so full all the time. It's like, how do you get in there? And even if you did, how long are you going to wait in line to do one thing? Um, and maybe that's been good for New York's Comic-Con. Put more emphasis here because not everybody could get there. And I think we saw that with Origins, too, that never had game releases, at least the big game releases. And now you're seeing that. So one of them was Imperial Settlers that came out in Origins, which was kind of surprising that they didn't went to Gen Con. But that just goes to show that there's so much interest that the other cons, which are usually smaller, are continuing to expand. So we'll probably see other ones pop up pretty soon. Yeah. All right. Um, the 2014 International Gamers Awards were announced. The nominees, that's not a big award, but the, the focus of that seems to be, according to the website... Uh, games that appeal equally to hobbyists and the gaming public. So let me run down the 10 nominees. You tell me which of those games you think appeals balanced to the serious gamers and the casual gamers. A Bluxen, Caverna, Concordia, Freedom, the Underground Railroad, Istanbul, Legacy, the, the Duke of Cressy, Lewis and Clark, Nations, Russian Railroads, and Spirium. Hmm. Oh, we've, we've played most of those. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which do you think has that balance, straddles that line? Spirium, maybe? Yeah, that seems like the best candidate there. I mean, Caverna is a pretty big investment for someone who's not familiar with and already engaged in like game bo- uh, board game culture uh, and, and playing. And the um, Yeah, Spirium, the, uh, what's the word, the ergonomics of it, uh, holding the cards in your hand, playing with cards is familiar, it's simple, whereas it introduces more complex strategic elements. Well, if we're just looking for a balance, actually just looking for the appeal to be zero, then Freedom's a very good candidate because I think it has zero appeal to both audiences. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) man. Okay. You burned your copy, didn't you? (laughs) Flashback burn. Flashback burn. (laughs) I didn't realize burn was an option in the rating system. (laughs) Retroactive burn. A couple quick things. Atlantic Monthly, um, a couple weeks ago, had an article about women in uh, Kickstarter that they seem more likely to secure Kickstarter funding than men do. In the board gaming category, 40% of women had successful Kickstarters, only 32% of men. Um, There are a couple different reasons that could be. Um, I mean, it could be anything from the fact that uh, men who are prepared to be successful board game designers are disproportionately well represented in board the board game industry, so they don't show up as men running successful board games uh, board game kickstarters. They show up as companies running successful board game kickstarters, whereas women are disproportionately underrepresented in the hobby and likely in the industry. So you would have a greater chance of those with greater talent being left on the sidelines and having to look for other ways okay. into the industry. There could be some easily, right. easy explanations. Things like that. Or men are more likely to present really bad Kickstarter projects. <laughs> <laughs> or women are going to build in communities, which basically is Kickstarter is all about. That's right. Yeah. Hey, um, the D&D Player's Handbook, 5th edition, topped Amazon's bestseller list. You know, there are millions upon millions of uh, copies on that list. They were number one for a few days when it was into general release. We all know about Parks and Rec's um, fake game, The Cones of Dunsher. They played a version of that at Gen Con. You may have known it was for charity, $100 a seat, very limited seating. Mayfair Games raised $20,000 for a local food bank there in Indianapolis. So really cool that they did that. Um, And one final thing, I'm not going to get into this too much because I can't wrap my head around this, but you know about Bitcoin, the digital... Yes, cryptocurrency. They have a, um, a collectible competitive card game 
similar to Magic the Gathering, that's totally digital, totally based on Bitcoin. Buying the cards digitally, uh, trading them, using them. It's called Deck Bound. They're going into alpha in September. So look that up, Deck Bound. Uh, I'm going to do a little more research and probably talk about that more in the future, but this could be a whole new way of gaming. So that's what I found so far for the past week, and I will step aside and let the three of you carry on from here. All right. right. Thanks, Jake. Kicking the Habits. Hey, kickers, on episode 12 of Kicking the Habit, we'll take a look at two campaigns that recently wrapped up and four new campaigns. Dead Man Tells No Tales, Mafia, the party game, now with eight new character cards, Rorosaurus, and Movie Plots, a blockbuster storytelling game. So check us out on September 10th, 2014, and I'll let you know whether you should kick it off, kick back and wait, or kick it to the curb. Acquisition Disorder Corner. So for mine, um, I'm going to pick a game that I probably don't haven't played in a few months, and I told myself already I'm going to stop buying the ships for, but <laughs> this announcement was pretty cool, so now I really want it. Arr, fantasy Flight. Um, it's the Scum and Villainy expansions for X-Wing. So if you haven't seen these yet, it's basically five new ships, um... Six new ships? Five or six new ships that are from bounty hunters and various scum and villainy from the Star Wars universe. Uh, The big pack, the most wanted pack, is going to have three ships in it, plus a new card for Boba Fett so you can use him in part of this faction, which of course you have to do. And then there are three expansions, including the ship for IG-88 and Prince Zizor from Shadow of the Empire, um, if you've read any of the expanded universe pre-Disney nerf. Um, <laughs> he's so. blue. That's pretty much it. That's all you need to know. He's the blue guy. He's yeah. the blue guy. WWI. But not the other blue guy. The first blue guy. The blue for you. Yeah. Um, so it looks awesome, and I don't play enough of this game right now, But not, and I have none of these. I, I don't own Boba Fett, so I would literally, if I bought this, I would be buying into a completely new faction, for which I have nothing, <laughs> for a game I don't play... So that's how bad this is. As I got acquisition disorder, I think I win this week because it's just <laughs> like I shouldn't want these. No, no. And I'm like, if this was already on the auction block. I was thinking about selling these because I'm like, I already have attack wing, and now I have the, like I have both of these. I'm only going to play one, and right now I play neither. So I should sell one. Star Wars is probably the one I won't play because Daniel and Chris both have Star Trek, and Assault is out now too. So. Uh. Assault is kind of challenging. Too many games, you guys. <laughs> I'm already. I'm not buying Armada. Okay, I don't care how cool it looks. I'm not buying it. It's just I can't do another one. Hey, Anthony, Armada. It's got a victory class. No, and a Corvette. Imperial Assault. I'll take that. I'll buy that. Okay. Yeah, we're okay for now, but eventually you'll have to sacrifice again to the fantasy flight gods. <laughs> Someone else's turn, <laughs> right? Anybody? Somebody volunteers? Uh... Yeah, these look pretty awesome. I don't... Actually, in front of me right now, I don't know when these come out, but presumably, if they're announcing it now, probably beginning of the year. During that glut of Star Wars stuff that's going to come out in, like, January, all that early uh, 2015 releases. So, yeah, because release them all at the same time, see if people can afford that. (laughs) Anyways, that's me. Daniel, what what do you got on the list? Well, uh, so back during the Barnes & Noble sale this summer, I picked up a copy of Dungeon Command, the Sting of Loth pack, and I picked this game up because it looked kind of interesting and I thought I'd give it a shot, but I only have the Sting of Loth pack, which means I can't really play it, at least not in the way it's meant to be played. There is a modified rule set for playing with half a faction, but that doesn't sound very fun. Oh, boring. Yeah. Uh... So I want to buy at least one other faction for Dungeon Command. But I have no idea which faction I should buy. So maybe some of our listeners who are more involved with this game could give me some feedback. So if any of you guys have ever played Dungeon Command and there's a particular faction you really like or you really despise, let me know. Comment on the webpage. 
or email yeah, us. Yeah, BoardGamersAnonymous.com or the Guild on BoardGameGeek. Yeah. Uh, that would be very uh, very helpful. Tell Daniel what to buy. Please. <laughs> I need your sage advice. What kind of uh, factions do you like typically in fantasy games? Is it Undead, elves? Is elves? it elves? Is it elves? Uh, it's got to be elves, right? Elves. Why would it not be elves? <laughs> it's totally elves, right? Everybody's with you, right? Do you, you even know what we're talking about right now. No, I just heard elves. That's all it is. <laughs> Chris was in the other room. He came running in. Elves work on everything. Elves, elves. They solve every problem. <laughs> oh... You know, I should introduce you to another old friend of mine who uh, has the exact opposite view, which is in every game he tries to murder elves or the things closest to elves. Look, Harry Potter, House Elves, they come save the day. Dobby, come on. Yeah. Lord of the Rings, who saves the day? The elves. And we yeah, already mentioned... Yeah, the Hobbit. <laughs> yeah, that's so Yeah, really, the, mostly <laughs> the Hobbit. Well, the elves keep them alive. That's true. Kind of. Go Hobbits. Hobbits! Oh, a Hobbit faction. The wizards, they're they're like a, a race, right? They're Does any game have a Hobbit faction except for Terra Mystica? Dungeons and Dragons, Halflings were originally called Hobbits and they got sued. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> I could see that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what else? I think they were called Hobbits. Anyway. Yeah. Challenge number two to the listener. If you've played a game with a Hobbit class... <laughs> that's not a Lord of the Rings game. That's not a Lord of the Rings game because that's cheating completely. Yes. Obviously, they're not going to be called Hobbits because lawsuits. And if it's a Dungeon Command faction for Daniel, double, double win. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Yeah. That's fair enough. Yeah. Pick that up when somebody gives you a good recommendation. Yeah. So that's my acquisition disorder for this week. All right, so we've been talking about uh, Philip DeBerry's great games that have been coming out. Kickstarter, he has Skyway Robbery that's still active. So if you haven't backed that yet, check that out. Also check out Kicking the Habit. We have a long interview with him. But the acquisition disorders with his games do not stop there. He's recently put out Revolution Anarchy. This is another five to six player expansion for the base game. And basically what it does is what the last expansion does is it replaces the middle of the board with a new smaller board. So you'll get new bidding boards, um, you'll also get two new sets of components, but with this thing it gives you something a little bit different. You'll be able to use the warden to force people into jail, blackmail the heretic and take over the asylum. So there's a lot of difference in this game instead of just the usual capture the area and push people around. Actually if you end up in the asylum and you have the most in there, you're gonna lose 30 points of support if you're in the jail it's another 30 points of support and the garden is quite the opposite which each little block that you control in there you'll gain 10 points of support so it actually has that negative component a little bit kind of like um, a la Scoundrels of Skullport adding something negative to a game that only just usually has a positive kind of component to it so I'm going to purchase this day it comes out because we really love Revolution it's a light, easy, entry-level game that plays with so many people, and it's nice to actually now have the ability to swap out the different middle parts. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, Revolution, it's already a combative game, so yeah. why not throw some negative points in there? <laughs> it makes people more angry. Sounds like a, a really great expansion on an already very good game. Absolutely. Yeah, and if you haven't yet, um, check out episode 34, because we have like a little uh, sneak peek of that interview or of course listen to episode 11 of Kicking the Habit which came out just this last week and that has the um, the full interview right Chris? yep absolutely awesome alright so that's all the acquisition disorders for this week thank goodness (laughs) (laughs) we survived another week yes (laughs) we'll see how many suggestions come in for Daniel yeah (laughs) he's gonna be crying next week (laughs) it'd be a problem (laughs) wait I thought of one Small World has a halfling race. It oh, does. Yeah. Yes. Good call. Alright, now go buy that. I have it. Oh, oh. damn it. <laughs> Done. Done. Whoa. <laughs> what? <laughs> Preemptive purchase. <laughs> Alright. Uh, Alright, so we're going to jump in now to our uh, what we've been playing lately. At the table this week. Alright, so the game that I got out this week, and this is a bit of a surprise for everybody, so make sure you're sitting down. Am I sitting down? We're all sitting down. All right, good. So, but if you're listening, sit down. It's a trick-taking game. Whoa. And what? I like it. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> uh, so if you haven't listened to every episode, I don't tend to like trick-taking games at all. No. 
too many wasted actions, too much pointlessness. I don't know. They don't do anything. They're all the same. Anyways, I could go on. <laughs> There's a lot of bad games out there, and people have fun with them. I don't. This one I like a lot. So it's based on Poison, uh, Reiner Nietzsche, and it's a pretty old game. I think it was published originally by Hasbro, and it's not in print anymore. So luckily a couple people at Myriad, back when it was open, had copies, and they'd bring it in, and we'd play it casually, and I liked it a lot. There's never a term where you can't do anything. There are always rounds where you're, you're going to do a little bit better. There's multiple rounds to the game. So it's not, you don't get stomped and you're never like sitting there doing nothing the whole time. Like some other trick-taking games that will not be named all of them. <laughs> but um, it's not easy to get, though. So this was a hole in my collection. I don't own any trick-taking games. I don't have any super quick card games in this genre because I don't like them usually. And... Recently, Yellow put out a new version of this game called Friday the 13th, which is the exact same game with little square cards and no cauldrons and an interesting color choices on the cards. But otherwise, exactly the same game. Uh, everybody gets a hand of cards equal to whatever percentage of the deck, however many players there are. You take turns putting them down in one of three stacks. If it hits 13 or breaks 13, the total of the number on that stack, you have to pick up the cards. If you have the most of any one color, they don't count against you, but everything else counts as one. And then there are Friday the 13th cards, which count as two. So if somebody throws that in a pot and you pull it, that's extra points, and you get those points no matter what. So the goal is to have the least number of points after four rounds. Easy as that. I like it. It's fun. It's quick. You can pull it out when we're sitting outside Daniel's locked apartment. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, it's incredibly easy to teach. You can teach it to anybody in like two minutes. Which is most trick-taking games, except it's good. So <laughs> I'm happy with that. Glad I bought it. Um, I think it's $15, so it's pretty affordable. Get it online for a little less than that. comes in those awesome little uh, yellow magnetic box. It would have been cool if they had something like the cauldrons, because the original game had the cauldrons. This yeah. one does not. There's no player mat or anything, but that's my one complaint. Yeah. I mean, that does reduce the footprint a little bit, taking those out, which, which is nice. And so it's more flexible for not having the cauldrons. Though I guess you could have always just played without the cauldrons if you wanted to. Yeah, I mean, it's just a card game. All you need is three stacks yeah. and then your own stack. Everything else you're holding. So yeah. we played it on a banister. Yeah, so. yeah I love this poison. love it even more as Friday the 13th, especially now that there's actually a version of this in print. And especially all those components in the box are great. I mean, as nice as it was to have poison out there it was kind of a unwieldy box this is actually nice this really kind of fits with it. it's a small box you take it on the go kind of throw the cards out play real quick and kind of throw it back in the only thing i would say is the the color choices were a little off the reds and the oranges kind of it was a little hard to kind of make out especially if you're colorblind you might have a little bit of a challenge with this they didn't go with like stark differences of colors but beyond that it's a fantastic game yeah, and one more thing I would do want to say, and Chris, you complain about this a lot actually, is that if you have a lot of cards and only like two or three options, use different art on each card. Yes. They do that here. Which I like. So every card in the game is different. Um, I mean, if there's multiples of some cards, obviously they're the same. So the, the red seven is, or yellow seven, whatever color it is, they both look, you know, they all look the same, but the seven is different from the five, which is different from the three, which is different from the two and the one. Um, that's pretty cool. It's a nice touch that you don't always see. Uh, the original Poison does not have that. Yeah, and this is all, they're nice. all based on superstitions, right? Mm -hmm. So yes. that's kind of nice and funny as, as far as the theme is concerned. Yeah, and there's mirrors, yeah. ladders, and cats. Yeah. So, fun game. If you do not have Poison and you've been looking for it, or if you're looking for a trick-taking game that um, is easy to teach and you don't have one yet, or if you're like me and don't like trick-taking games at all and want one in your collection that won't annoy you, Check out Friday the 13th. Good game. Yeah, I would definitely pick this one up. It's a buy for me, and it's really, it plays with everybody. Yeah, I mean, I, I honestly might buy it. It's, it's a great game. It's portable. It's fr uh, friendly for those who don't have a lot of experience, and it's fun. All right, next up I'm going to jump in here with a game called Endeavor. Now, the challenge with this is going to be this game is currently out of print, so hopefully this isn't too wrenching for you, but... I actually had a chance to play this up at the Montclair Bergen County board game meetup. And it's an interesting game because it combines two types of mechanics. The first is it's a worker placement game. So 
in the beginning rounds of the game, you'll purchase a tile, and the tile gives you an opportunity to place your work on there to activate its actions. If it doesn't have a spot for a worker, then it allows you to gain a smaller bonus throughout the game. Now, the game itself is all about gaining glory for your kingdom as you expand throughout Europe using the Mediterranean type of shipping lanes. Now, the board itself is pretty interesting and really beautiful, actually, because there's two sections to it. So you start off in Europe, and that's the main section where you'll kind of be starting out, and as you place down, you'll be able to get special abilities and different skills that'll benefit you throughout the game. Now, it has a whole... Your main board is going to have a number of different tracks. So you have a building track, you'll have a population track, you have a goal track, and you'll have a track that will allow you to play additional cards. So you have the buildings, you have the track, the population activates on the board, and then you'll get additional cards from different spots on the board, which will give you additional bonuses to those tracks. So you might have a card that allows you to get two gold or three buildings, and that kind of gives you bonuses throughout the game. Now, this has a little bit of a point salad mechanic to it because typically wherever you're placing on the board is going to score you points. So as I said, the European section is kind of open to begin with, but then you can sail out to these other sections, and based upon where you place your tokens, you can place it in such a way that it's on one spot and then on, across the board on another spot, and then in between you're able to score that third spot. So the tokens kind of flip over and let you know what are the bonuses that you're getting for those spots. It's an outstandingly stunning um, conception as far as everything plays tightly, everything plays thematically, and it's actually a lot of fun too. As I said, the game is out of print, so it's going to be a little hard to kind of get your hands on this, but if you ever do see Endeavor out on a game table, be sure to check this out. It's a lot of fun to play, and it plays with a lot of people. Alright, um, so it's out of print, so I'm sure it's like $150 or something, right? Exactly. What would you pay if you saw it? I mean, would you buy it? I mean, I, I, mean, I think the game, the worker placement section where you pick up these tiles that give you possible actions is has been done already. It's kind of been there, done that. But the board itself where you have the shipping lanes is, is pretty innovative, especially when you combine it with the tracks that allow you to move up different spaces. Um, I would not pay the 150 for it. No. Um, by far. <laughs> Ditto. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I would say this game, if it, let's say, let's imagine it stays out of print, at least in the near future. I would say this game is probably worth about 70 bucks. Okay. Not bad. Oh, yeah. Wow. yeah. But uh, always keep your eye on the market first to see if this game is coming out in print. I know people, a lot of people requested, but. As of yet, there's no release date for a new reprint, which is a shame because it's actually a very good game. It's not super old, though, right? So it's... maybe if people check their local gaming store, they might get lucky. Absolutely. If you can't find this on the line, always check out always check out the local stores because they usually have a copy kind of hidden away. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Well, my at the table this week is well, it's actually our at the table because we all played this together, uh, and you guys are all going to be already familiar with this game, but it's Power Grid. Yeah, so this is our weekly entry in that classic kind of callback thing where a game that somehow none of us except for Drew had played, right? That we're going to, that we kind of in that genre of you should play this if you play board games. Yeah. So we finally got it out. Well, and it's, you know, part of the, the reason I think we were so slow to get to it is looking at the box and then the art and everything, Power Grid looks like it's going to be boring. And it just is not, right? It plays fantastically. I mean, the, for those of you not familiar, the game is about building up uh, power plants so that you can power more and more cities. Uh, uh, you've all played this game. <laughs> I'm not going to go in, much in, in detail on the rules. But they're not terribly complicated, so that's another reason not to give too much attention to them. Um, and I was just very happy with the gameplay all the way through. It seems like it could take that place in the gaming pantheon of like the classic games that are on a family bookshelf. Uh, it could take that position away from Monopoly, I think. I mean, well, Monopoly could already be burned anyway, but because um, it has a lot of similar elements, right? It's got the paper money, it's got the sort of wealth building uh, idea, you've got to lock down certain pathways, um, but it's much more exciting, it's much more intricate. And yeah. much easier to play. Yeah. yeah, I had a lot of fun with it. Um, 
I don't know if it could ever really replace Monopoly because there's a lot more math. And I think eight-year-olds would have an aneurysm. <laughs> but if I'd been a kid, I would have been happy to play this instead of Monopoly. <laughs> could have handled it. It was awesome, though. It was a great game. Yeah. You know, I can't believe I hadn't played it yet. Yeah, this game looks dusty, dry, boring, spreadsheet, you know, mechanical kind of... I mean, really any kind of word of dry and boring you could possibly imagine. And the game itself actually has a lot of fun to it. The bidding mechanic is really nice. It's fun to kind of pick up different resources at different stages depending on what they're worth. The only downside I will say, and we haven't got multiple, multiple plays of this in yet... But it does see where your initial placement is. It allows you at least a little bit of a head start. Because if you do have, like, let's say where I'm placing, there's threes and four connections. And you have fives and sixes. It's going to be a a little bit advantageous on my part to kind of spread out early. And then the the more cities you can power, the more points and the more money you're getting... And that even that, that little edge can make a big difference. Now, I know there's multiple maps, and maybe that kind of mitigates that a little bit. But, you know, the USA map on the eastern seaboard is threes and fours down the way, and I don't think that's anywhere else in the game. Yeah, I mean, I'm honestly not sure if that's going to come out to a significant difference, because later on in the game, right, you can place your second and third paths, and those will be cheaper for people coming in than these... Uh, because they'll get those same discounts, right? Those junctions will still be 3 as opposed to 10. Sure. And so you'll be late game trying to build into these places that cost 10, 15. Um, and, I, and the way that the power plants are ordered when they come out, so that the more expensive ones go bottom and can't be purchased yet, I think makes that small lead in total wealth early on might not be all that significant, but I'm not sure. I mean, it would take a couple more plays before. Yeah, because by the time I got up to the, to the, the East Coast... I would have to pay 15 or 20 yeah. instead of a 10. Yeah. So a spot that costs you 13 is going to cost me at least 18 or mm-hmm. 23. Yeah, I'm not sure how the math will work out on that. I think we not really argued, but had a conversation about that at no, no, it's just 12.30 a.m. whenever we were finished. Like, <laughs> um, no consensus, too much math. I'm sure someone's listening who's already done the math can tell us. Um, yeah. But. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Uh, Chris picked up a bunch of maps for me for my yes. birthday, so I have those sitting there waiting to play. And the robots. And the robots, yes. <laughs> my, my poor pregnant wife doesn't really have the energy to sit down and learn this game right now, but when she does, we're going to play with the robots. Or maybe one of us can, because we now all own this game. Thank yep. you, Barnes & Noble. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> um, definitely a classic worth owning, though. I'm glad I bought it. Oh yeah, definitely buy this one. If you don't have it on your shelf yet, it's it's definitely a buy. And be sure to spread out the word to everybody else about Barnes & Noble, but don't tell Barnes & Noble that they're giving away really, really good stuff. It's a secret. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we don't rush there at all and fight over these games when they do their clearances every three months. No. I, I don't know a single person who visited three Barnes & Nobles in a single day that may or may not have been 40 miles away from one another. <laughs> I don't Who does that? that? No one does no that. No one does that. Why would you do that? Spend the same amount of money in gas as you would just to buy the games <laughs> at full price. <laughs> I got a deal, though. Joke's uh, on you. I have a hybrid. <laughs> oh. It's just your time you're wasting then. That, yeah, not my time. That's totally why he bought the hybrid. <laughs> <laughs> to get board games. To get, to board, get board games. games. He knew this day would come and he said, I have to calculate in my board game buying purchases. <laughs> yeah. Good plan. Yeah. yeah. Worked See, out pretty well. You're always thinking ahead of us, man. <laughs> uh, yeah, Power Grid's awesome. Um, really glad we got to the table finally. It's one of those classics that I don't know how, after so many months at the game store, none of us have played. But now we've played it, and we will play it again. It's a little long. That's the only thing that's going to be tough about it. But the setup is like 10 minutes. Yeah. And the teaching is like half that. It's so easy. Do you think it's going to get samey after a while, though? Yeah, probably. Like any of those games, though. They all get samey. Um... Fortunately, I have five other maps. Yeah. <laughs> and all the maps are two-sided. So even the one in the base box, you have two maps to play on. That's yeah. great. Yeah. So great yeah. game. Good pick. All right. So next up, we're going to talk about our feature review, which is one of the hot new games out of Gen Con this year, Imperial Settlers. And now for the feature review. All right. So our feature review this week is... Imperial Settlers. This comes from Ignacy Trevichek, who basically made a very similar game a few years ago called The 51st State. Um, 
it's not a reskin of that game. I know some people have said that, but it is a very different game in a lot of ways. But it uses kind of a similar mechanic where these cards have different uses. You can do different things with them based on what you want to do. But the idea of the game is relatively simple. Um, there's a drafting mechanic, so there's been some comparisons to Seven Wonders, but it's not really like Seven Wonders. There's tableau building, but it's not a perfect tableau builder because you're destroying cards sometimes, too. Uh, there are multiple ways to use your cards. You can destroy your own cards. You can make deals with them and put them under the board. There's a lot of things here that are happening at once, and you're building up kind of a network of cards that will all interact with each other over the course of the game. So towards like the fifth round, when you're at the end, you might spend a few minutes looking at all these things, seeing what they do. So in the game, everybody has an empire of sorts, except the barbarians, which I guess are an empire that picks on the other ones. I'm not really sure how that's supposed to work, but there are the Romans, there are the Japanese, there are the Egyptians, and then barbarians. Uh, thematically, it is interesting to see how each of the individual faction decks, because they each have their own faction deck with unique cards based on like the style of play you'd expect from that particular faction. Um, and you're going to draw cards from both that and a common deck. And the cards in the common deck, those are the ones you draft at the beginning of each round. There are five rounds, so you'll be drafting a total of ten times because you draft twice at the beginning of each round. And then you're going to have various production phases as well, based on what's on your player board, but also what's on the cards you put out. So every round you're going to get lots of little bits um, for production. So it's kind of like, you know, if you think about in Seven Wonders, if you actually got a token for every one of those things on your board, every time you went to play a card, which would be a nightmare and take forever... That's what you get here, except it's only five times, because it's just for that one production round. And then there's the action phase, in which you take all the stuff you just accumulated, all the cards you've gotten, and you do lots of cool stuff with it. You build locations, you make deals, and basically, I mean, I'm going to theme a little bit here, but when you're building a location, you're building out your own empire. You're spreading, you're building your influence in the world. When you make a deal, you're basically taking a card, putting it upside down under your board, and you're making a deal with another um, empire to get resources from them. So it's just a way to build on your production and get more stuff at the beginning of each round. But the idea is not that you're burning a card, it's that you're working with somebody else. And the reason that matters is because later on there are some cards where it tweaks what the deals do, especially if you're the Japanese faction. Then there's the raise uh, action, and this is fighting, basically. So if you raise one of the cards from your own hands, basically you just your empire came across the hut in the wilderness and you tear it to the ground looking for gold. Uh, if you raise somebody else's, you're raiding their territory. You're going in there and you're taking out one of their locations. And you can only take out common locations unless you're playing the Japanese again, which, again, they have a very different kind of deck the way it plays. Uh, it costs more to attack other people's cards, but sometimes it's worth it if you gain enough and they lose enough in the effort. And some factions gain even more by that. So, like, the, uh, the Barbarians are really built around messing with other people's stuff. And then the fourth action you can do is activate any action location. That's one of the three types of cards you can put out. And these are all things like turn in these resources, get these victory points, uh, go attack somebody and get this, draw these cards. Just various actions you can do by taking doing a specific thing. I'm not going to go through all of them because there's probably two or three dozen different types of actions because there's common actions and then there's all the stuff each faction deck can do. Finally, you can turn in workers to get resources you do not have. So any two workers can be turned in for food, wood, stone, or cards. That's basically it. I mean, probably even more rules than you really need to know in advance, but the game seems super familiar when you're setting it up, so it's important to point out the different ways that it's different because you're not playing it. It's not a card drafting game only. It's not a tableau builder only. You do attack other people, but you're playing very much solitaire. Um, the game has actually an... It's aggressive by nature, the base rules, but there's a passive mode where you just don't attack each other. And that's easy, because you just take out the components where you can attack each other. Like, just don't allow it, and those not, it doesn't change anything else about the game, because you can still raise your own stuff. So it's that kind of game... And it definitely plays a little bit longer than we thought it did, but overall I think it fit the theme that you know everybody's been talking about. It is very interesting, and you know, I'm excited to play it again and to talk about it, hear what you guys think. Yeah, I mean, it's, it was a solid game. Uh, I don't feel particularly strongly about it either way. It kind of felt like, yes, this is a game. All right, 
I had fun, but not exceedingly large amounts of fun. And, you know, there were some weird bits, but not horribly traumatic weird bits. So, you know, it's a game. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hello, Mr. Vanilla. (laughs) Yeah, right? This coming from the guy who has a strong opinion on almost every game we play. So, (laughs) (laughs) Well, for me, what I really liked about this game was two. Two things. Um, First off, I really like asymmetrical powers so that each race does play different. I am so tired of getting a different race card or faction card, and it's just a different color. I mean, it's so boring. Let me play something different each and every time. So to have a different faction that actually plays different by the main board on what resources they get, and then in addition to that, to be able to get its own deck that's specific for that faction is tremendous, right? I get to play something that's thematic, to that race and I really like that idea because you don't see that very often I know that takes a little bit more work to kind of work that into a game so bravo on that the second thing is I always like tableau building to be able to build an engine in front of you and not just place all the way out in the middle of the board but actually to have your own engine and seeing what it's doing that's a lot of fun and this game does that very well especially where you have these common buildings and you have these faction buildings and you need some production buildings, which, which are typically the common ones, and the faction buildings are the special ones. So it has an interesting gameplay as far as I'm building a civilization. What do I really need here? Do I need some? Do I need a temple, or do I need you know a woodsmith? You know what is it specifically that's going to benefit me? Uh, as the game goes on, and as you get used to the cards, you'll see that there are certain combinations that really chain together very well. And the only challenge with that is, is you really need to get through your deck. You need to have some sort of deck engine in order to get a chance to kind of put together those ideal combos. Otherwise, you're only going to see about half your deck, and there may be one or two of those special cards that you need to complete that combo that may never come up. So I was playing Egyptian. I really liked playing them. They were really fun because I was able to build two pyramids pretty early on. So I had plenty of gold and plenty of stone, and the gold kind of gets held by the Egyptians, so a lot of things chained nicely with that, and even a couple of the common buildings were really nice because they chained as well. What's really difficult about this game is, especially, I know Anthony mentioned like there's a nice friendly level to this game you can play, but the raise action, now you can raise your own cards, which is very helpful, but to raise somebody else's cards, you really gotta know pretty well what they're doing. What is, where is their engine amongst all of those cards? What's scoring them a lot of victory points? And the, even though we played very closely together, the text is just way too small to be able to figure out what cards are really benefiting them. Now, you'll see them score points, but, you know, is that three victory point card worth more than that one that's generating four resources every turn? And especially with the Egyptians, because you weren't getting a lot of raise tokens... You're making one choice or two choices a game to actually be able to take somebody out. So that's kind of rough too. And if other people are trying to take out other buildings, you know, like for me, I got tacked, I think, throughout the game. I think I lost about six buildings throughout the game. And I'm like, well, Daniel's building a lot of stuff and he's got a lot of money. But, you know, you don't want to be that guy in the game like, hey, hey, see that guy? He's, he's doing things and things are happening. But people perceive a lot of cards built in front of you as as like, that's a lot of points. And it was. I scored very well in that game. um, Came close to winning there. But beyond that, it would be really nice if there was an easier way to identify what are the good cards in that game, other than that little tiny symbol that shows you if it's a one or two or three kind of card. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, it's tough. It's the kind of game where the first time you play it, you're just learning. You're going to have to play this two or three times. Um to really understand what a what all every faction is supposed to do so like daniel figured his faction out maybe the second or third round Uh, i figured mine out like the fourth round drew didn't quite figure his out till the last round (laughs) but they're different they're all very different so you're supposed to basically in this kind of game usually you have to come up with a strategy and then go with it right this game kind of tells you what the strategy is and you have two or three ways to play the faction deck but 
you need to know what it is in advance, and we didn't because we didn't really know what all the cards did. Yeah, I mean, I think part of the reason it didn't excite me too much is so I was playing the Japanese, and I got dojos and trade routes, which together allow me to make deals for other people's cards and then get victory points every time I make a deal. And clearly that just meant that I was going to be the deal guy. Like, <laughs> I was like, well, there's my strategy. Right. In, sure. in my hand, there is my strategy for the game. And so I ended up just making a bunch of food, which is also the thing that the Japanese are able to hold on to because every faction can hold on to one particular resource. Uh, and then using that food to power deal after deal after deal. And towards the end there, I was raking in... I was probably doing four deals a turn for two victory points each, so eight victory points, and getting the benefits of all the deals. Which is, I guess, for me as a player, I don't actually like it too much when the faction just says, here's how I'm supposed to play, like, do this. I prefer when there's more flexibility, and I'm sure there are other ways to play the Japanese. Um, Yeah, well, I mean, also, you're not always going to get those cards that quickly or that easily. Yeah, and I think that's the other the downside to the asymmetrical play, and this is also true of Terra Mystica, where the races do have special unique abilities. But if you're not playing that special unique ability, you're not going to win the game. There's not a lot of variety in this game where you could not play that ability. You can't just play enough common cards and a couple of faction cards to win you the game, which is not going to happen. Yeah, I didn't like. I was pretty far behind. Me and Drew were both pretty far behind because we really hadn't figured our decks out yet. And then I started messing with people, which is what barbarians are supposed to do, is stealing their stuff and destroying their deals and going in and attacking them with various cards out that you get bonuses for that. And then I kind of caught up. I mean, like, you still won by a decent amount, Daniel, but I, I caught up pretty solidly towards the end because that's what my deck was supposed to do. Um, I don't know if I like that too much either because it really hurts replayability. Like, yeah, you could rotate who's playing what, and it's going to be different every time. And you could probably play each deck two or three times and have fun with it each time. But eventually you're going to be like, okay, yeah. I'm the Japanese, I better grow some food. It's not... Yeah. I mean, ultimately, I think the re- one of the reasons... One of the biggest reasons I won was that people weren't being aggressive towards me. Because the Japanese, unlike every other faction, their uh, faction cards can be attacked and destroyed. Um, and, I mean, I took precautions against this because they can place... Uh, meeples to be defenders and have permanent defense bonuses to various locations and I did that for every faction building I built put a samurai down on it uh, which is why Drew kept shooting past me and going for Chris um, yeah and I wasn't paying enough attention to how many points you were pulling from that Yeah, because I could have taken all those cards out by the fourth round I just yeah. but then again like my bonus was if I destroy somebody's building then I would get bonus points for the goods that I would have raised. Japanese faction cards, when you raise them, you just get a victory point. Right. So I'd get nothing. So it'd be much less valuable for I you. lose three victory points. All I'm doing is hurting you. Like, And that's probably some of the internal logic of the game, that they built it such a way that there's ways to kind of keep each other in check between the Romans and the Barbarians, but then you're expected to keep each other in check. Whereas the Egyptians and the Japanese probably score a lot of points to kind of counter that. So maybe the scores would have been more closely aligned if everyone was doing their job. But at the same time, that's not really that fun. You shouldn't have to do your job. I mean, the faction decks have enough of the good quality cards that you're never going to be completely out of the game if you're not pulling those one or two super duper cards. But at the same time, those one or two super duper cards are just amazing. Yeah. So... Yeah, if you pull it early enough in the game, you can do it every round. A lot of, I mean, a lot of games are like that. Like, sure. If you get your big, powerful card out in round two of five, yeah. you're going to benefit from it every round versus if you only pull it in the fifth and you can only use it once. Yeah. So the Japanese uh, fact conduct, they have two cards that are really special, which are ones where you store things on them and you get points for however much you store. One's resources and one's discarded cards, and that can give like a massive surge at the end. But I just... I didn't even need them. I ended up throwing them out to make another deal so I could power the engine further. Uh, because at that point in time, it would get me more victory points for the end game. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I just I had trouble getting excited about it though. I mean, the art was decent. So the idea was pretty fun. The theme was pretty cool, yeah. but it just seemed kind of bland while I was playing through it. 
Yeah, I'm trying to figure out if there is something that they could add to the game as far as an expansion is concerned to kind of lock it in a little bit better. Maybe a third type of deck that wasn't your faction or commons. Maybe like wonders or something. Wonders would be great or exploration. Like you know, you're able to pull in resources. You know, different type of chit or something along those lines. I think this game might actually play, and I know this is kind of counterintuitive to every other game, but maybe if this game did not have the attacking element and they pulled that out of Barbarian, they pulled it out of Roman, so you can play just play your own deck, uh, more of a la kind of Seven Wonders, even though there is attacking, it really doesn't affect you too much, it does a victory point thing. It's, you know, it would lose a little theme there, but the game could use something more. It could, yeah. Um... I had a lot of fun with it. I think it's cool. My deck didn't really fall into that kind of step-by-step rote thing that yours did, Daniel, towards the end. Yeah. I can see why you were like bored almost. <laughs> um, because, yeah, the last two rounds, you we all knew what you were going to do. Because it's not... I had fun because I was trying to figure out how to maximize my own thing. While a lot of my cards had me stealing from other people. I'm like, where do I steal? What do I mess with? That was cool for me. I had, So I had fun with that deck. Uh there are supposed to be a lot more expansions. Uh, the back of the rule book itself says, look for more expansion packs with new common infection cards, create your own faction decks. That could be cool. Deck building element to it. Um, you know, because this is not like Summoner Wars at all, but Summoner Wars kind of has that same thing. Like, whatever faction you play, the game tells you how to play that faction because they have certain bonuses, certain special abilities. If you play it wrong, you're going to lose. Most games are like that if they're faction-based. So being able to tweak it and play it the way you want, awesome, very cool. It needs more civilizations too, I think. Um, giving people an option between things. If you don't want to be attacking, if you don't want to be like say nobody wants to be the Japanese and work on an engine like that, we need another option so that four people can sit down and play this without that being the case. Um, so I'll, I'm look forward to see what those expansions are. Yeah, I think that having the ability to customize your own faction deck and change the way they are built to run would add a lot of enjoyment for me. Yeah, I, I'm excited for that. I think it'll be fun. Yeah. And I think this game, too, like, nobody said it flat out, but all the previews I've seen, all the reviews I've seen, the people are playing it two players. A, I think it'd be quicker. B, it's easier to see what they're doing, because you're not trying to read three people's cards. C, you don't quite have the same, like, solitaire-esque thing, where, you're, you know, like, if you're on the opposite side of the table, you have no idea what that guy's doing. <laughs> like... Uh, and if you need to attack, if you're playing the Barbarians, it's easy. You have one person to attack, you take, you hit them where it hurts the most. And unlike in the four-player game, where if you go offensive, you're taking one player down, but there's still two others that can rush ahead of you while you're stopping to hit them, and two-player, right, you hit them, right, you're just trying to create a point difference between the two of you. Yep. So every attack is worthwhile. Yeah, and that's always my problem with an attack game with more than two players. That's one of the things Kemet does well, is it finds a way to benefit you if you attack people. You could gang up on somebody, even if they're weak and they're not winning, because you get the victory point for beating them. Games with multiple players, when there's attacking, it's hard for that to work. So in this case, you know, you can attack the wrong person, the other two people are like, what are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think you're right, especially to mention Kemet here, I think Kemet, which we reviewed last episode alongside Cyclades, is one of the few that does this particularly well, which rewards the aggression even in a multi-party game, because otherwise you tend to exhaust yourself just leaving yourself vulnerable or you're wasting time hurting someone else without really benefiting. Yeah. Uh, and But in a two-player game, every wound you inflict on them is essentially money in the pocket. Yep. It's yeah, there's very few games that actually attacking benefits you. Maybe Seven Wonders might be another one where you mm-hmm. score victory points, but Beyond that, it's almost always, in a Euro game, it's a wasted mechanic. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, and certain factions here do benefit. I got four points every time I took out one of somebody's buildings. Yeah. So, and do that from enough rounds is a lot of points. But not everybody can do that. Um, Overall, for me, uh, it's a play. I, I don't think it's really worth running out and buying right away, because I think a lot's, you know, if the back of this rule book is right and there are expansions coming, I think you should wait. Honestly, I think the game, it's fun. If somebody brings it out at the game store, you should play it. Um, I think you'll enjoy it. I think a lot of people will enjoy this game. But I don't think you should necessarily buy it unless you've played the 51st State and loved it. um, Or everything we just said sounds amazing to you. Until those expansions come out and you can start working on the deck building. Like, 
I would not have bought Summoner Wars when it was two or three decks and no expansions to build them with. Now it's an easy recommendation. Same thing with this. Wait until there's more factions that come out. Um, and be willing to try different playstyles. Uh, I'm going to get this game out. It actually has a very different way to play solo. Cards came in the box only for the solo version. So it's actually like basically two games packaged in there. I'm going to play it solo and see how it plays like that. And then we're going to try to get it out again as like a two-player and see how it plays like that. Because I think it's going to play very different with the different number of players. But as a larger base game, which is what it comes as for four all four factions, I say play, but wait to buy. I would say for this game, it's really hard because I was really looking forward to this game. And it has the card drafting element to it. It has a tableau building. It, you're building an engine. It is asymmetrical. It's got so much good to this that I want to recommend this as a buy. But I think as Anthony said, maybe since they've already thought, at least with the gameplay that they were putting together, that it needed something else and maybe just get out the base game and then they'll kind of kind of fill it out. I think at that point, once the expansions are out there, once the you can create your own faction, I think then it's a buy. Right now it's just a play. But... It has so much good to this. I can't wait for this to come out in its full form. Yeah, for me, I mean, it just it it lacked spark. It lacked interest. My decisions were pretty easy to make. I'm not sure if that's just because of the faction I was playing or just because of how the cards came out. But I, I wasn't on the edge of my seat at any point. I wasn't particularly excited at any point. And I was initially going to say play, but the more I think about it, if I'm not particularly excited at any point, right, play it if it's the only game you have on the table right now. But if there's anything else that's enjoyable, this is a dodge, right? It's it's the bottom of the playable heap for me. Like, yeah, you could play it, and it would probably be better than sitting around silently staring <laughs> at one another. Uh, and, you know, and it's, it's fun-ish. But it's not fun enough to merit, I think, a play even. I think it's you'd be safe dodging it until the expansions come out. All right. Maybe I'll get you to play the two-player. Yeah. Get you a different faction. That'd be interesting. Yeah. Be quicker, be more engaging. And just to see, because then we could see if somebody who was just bored yeah. is changed by a different gameplay mechanic, you know, playing a different style... Or if it's just the same feeling, it's like, no, that's the kind of game it is. Yeah, yeah, that'd be good to Yeah, know. but I'm wondering, too, with, even with the two-player version of that, what if you played, you know, we, as we talked about, the Japanese and the Egyptian are very just kind of like production, and the barbarians and the Romans are attack. So if you play two-player, do you play the two-attack? Do you play the two-production? Do you play one of each? Well, the book recommends um, if you play two-player... Actually, it recommends that you play a two-player game first with the Barbarians and the Romans. Aha! Okay. Which I did... I knew it! When I was learning the rules, I ran through that sure. yeah, initially. And it does... They do... They attack each other more frequently, so you, it does play more evenly. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's necessarily a good way to sell the game, because so there's four factions in the box, and you can play up to four players, but you should really only play two players with these two factions, and then the game will play exactly as I had in mind. That's not really helping the argument here. Yeah. But I do want to mention that in case anybody's listening and saying, you guys did it wrong because you played all four first. I played the two that you're supposed to. It, it played pretty well. Um, I played the Barbarians this time, and it, that faction played pretty well. I don't know if maybe just huh. the more complicated factions are harder to play or become programmed like that. But By the way, who's yelling at you like that? <laughs> <laughs> Rhetorical listeners. <laughs> you're out there. I can hear you. <laughs> <laughs> I can hear you breathe at the I other end. I get an itch behind my left ear every time someone listens you keep and disagrees. Him, you keep Anthony honest, which is a good thing, because <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it, it is a little worrying if the rulebook essentially says, hey, you know all that stuff we gave you? Like, half of it, half of it's usable. Use that half. <laughs> yeah. Ignore the other half. If you, if you play that a couple times, then you can play the rest, because you'll know how to play this book. Like, I mean, that's fine, I guess, but it's yeah. not... No, it's, see, it's worrisome. I, I think a bigger indictment is the back of the rule book says there's coming there's coming soon some expansions. Yeah, that's yeah. true. I mean, we're going to review a game in two weeks, Among the Stars, which we get to benefit by the fact that this came out two years ago in Europe. But base game, I'm sure it's good. You know, it's solid game. But two expansions are already out in the U.S. So if that gets the same review as this, it's going to get a better review because I'm like, buy the expansions. This game is brand new. We're going to have to wait. So. It might be six months to a year before we see those expansions and get to revise said review. 
at which point in time I will have totally forgotten this game exists <laughs> because it did absolutely nothing to put itself in my memory. I just, oh yeah, that was one of the many. Yeah, I have seen it. Yeah, and I have played it. And we have played it. That is our feature review of Imperial Settlers. It is, I you know, a little underwhelming. Um, we'll give it some time, though, and see how it plays out over the grand course of uh, Trevichek's. He's always got plans for it, so we'll see how it plays. That is everything we have for this week, this week's episode. Uh, next week, we have a special top list uh, of kind of your, not necessarily small lightweight games, but um, lunch hour games. So we'll get into more of what that means and exactly what those involve in next week's episode, but it's going to be like a fun list of games you can sit down and play with coworkers or classmates in an hour. But for this week, that is everything. This is Anthony. This is Chris. And this is Daniel. And until next time, we'll save you a space on the faction side of our board. <laughs> Not the common side. Not the common Not side. The common you are special. You're always going to the faction side. Because yeah, then you can't be attacked by the barbarians. This is what I'm saying. We would never want that to happen to you. The Romans can't do that. We got some samurai though. We got.